Amen. Pray with me, church. God, we praise you in this place as our awesome Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for that song that so perfectly captures your sacrifice, your death, your payment, your suffering. And Lord, your resurrection, too, that gives us new life. Praise God. Lord, we realize in this place that if you stay dead, our salvation is nothing. If you stay dead, our, our hope is dead. But Lord, on the third day, you rose from the dead. And even now, you sit at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Even now, you are the Lord of eternity, preparing to come back and to claim your own, us, your saints. Come, Lord Jesus. God, in this time of Advent, first Advent, we can't wait for second Advent. We can't wait for your return. So come soon, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful, to serve you, to love you, to follow you, to worship you. And God, help us, Lord, today in these next few moments to know the truth of your word, to believe it and to live it out. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. Well, good. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everyone. Welcome to Harvest Decatur. Let me just say uh, it's great to be back with you here this morning. So Sonia and I have been away the last couple weeks celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. So praise the Lord for that. And it's good to be back. It's good to worship. It's good to celebrate. It's good to be back in the book of Romans, which we'll be studying again today. Let me just say, before we get too far into the book of Romans, uh, a quick word of thanks to both Dave Harvey and Chris Frankovich for covering the pulpit for me the last couple of weeks. I'm very thankful for their messages from God's word. Let me say a word of thanks, especially to Chris Frankovich for last week's message. I love Chris's heart for evangelism and for the gospel and for Gideon's International as well. It's a great ministry. And I'm thankful that Chris got to share a little bit with you last week about his work there and how God is using him in Gideon's. I want to encourage you as well, consider, you know, I think about Christmas as this time of year, maybe the end of the year, where we consider charitable giving and ways that we can give to the work that God is doing, even beyond our church. I want to encourage you to consider supporting Gideon, supporting Chris and the work that he's doing. And maybe some of you as well, just in that same vein, need to think about ways that God might want to, to encourage you sacrificially to give beyond maybe your comfort level to some impactful ministries in Decatur. I think of New Life Pregnancy Center is a great place for us to give and support. I think of some other global ministries that uh, we can be involved in as a church. I, I know Sonia and I, we've made this a habit the last couple years to uh, just take some time in December and think, how might God use some sacrificial giving in our lives to ministries that are really impactful? And so this might be a time for you to think about that right now. It might be a time for you to catch up on your tithes here at Harvest Decatur. But I want you to think as well beyond just Harvest Decatur in some ways that God might be able to use you to give sacrificially. 
So consider that, Harvesticator, those of you who are able. Let me say this as well as we get started this morning. It's great to have you back. Hang too. Isn't it great having Hang worshiping with us? We love you, brother. Uh, just so you know as well, Hang is going to be leading worship next week as well. Him and Pastor Ryan, Ryan are going to be leading a, um, just a worship set of Christmas music. So December 20th, make sure you're here tuning in for that next Sunday. All right, Harvest Decatur, well, let's open up our Bibles together and let's turn to Romans 11. Romans 11. We're in the midst of this series entitled Holy Transformed. We're looking in these middle chapters of the book of Romans, and Paul is giving us this extended statement about how God's work with the Jews coincides with his work, uh, in his work with us, Gentiles, us Gentiles. And what's fascinating in these chapters is how Paul describes God's sovereign purpose in our world, with Jews and Gentiles both. And, and what I hope you're seeing as we're working through Romans, and there is, there's this intentionality with what God is doing in our world. There is purpose. And I want to show you an aspect of that purpose today from Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. And just to help us maybe think through this passage in depth, let's do this. We haven't done this in a while. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, and I'm going to read it from start to finish. Those of you who are watching online, those of you who are downstairs, let me invite you as well to turn to Romans 11, verse 11, and stand, and let's read this together. Church of God, the word of God says this. So I ask... Did they stumble, the Jews, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, 
How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Pray with me. Lord, there is an important message here for us. Gentiles that we are. There's an important warning for us here as well. God, you are calling us in this passage to humility and to gratitude that you have saved us, lowly Gentiles that we are. God, impress that upon our hearts this morning. From the truth of your word, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. When I first moved to central Illinois, when I moved to Arthur, Illinois, uh, we bought a house about 12 years ago in Arthur. And when we bought that house, I had one desire for my new house. I, I didn't care about square footage. I didn't care about a master bath. The only thing I wanted, and I told Sonia this, I want trees in my yard. That's all I want. And if you've ever been to Arthur, Illinois, or if you live in Arthur, Illinois, you know, trees are hard to find. They cut them all down, and they made it all farm ground. So I said, you know, if we buy a house in Arthur, which we did, I want some trees. That's all I want, some trees in my yard. And you know what? I'll tell you, I got some trees, some big, tall maple trees. And every summer, they would drop their helicopter seeds into my yard, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. I love those trees. So a few years ago, when we moved to Decatur area, you know, I had maybe a few more things on my list, but I told somebody, I want more trees. Give me some more trees. So I got some more trees in Decatur in our house now, and I'm so grateful for those trees. But I'll just tell you, let me just confess to you right now. I got trees. I've had trees in my two houses, but I don't really know that much about trees. Is anybody with me? I, I, don't, I don't know. I've even tried to plant some trees in my yard, and it, it didn't go well. I mean, I'm not very good at that. And so even as we come to this passage here where Paul's giving this elaborate description of this olive tree, I just think to myself, well, this, this is amazing. I, I love this, but I've never even seen an olive tree. I don't even know what this means, grafting in the tree and the, you know, the wild olive tree. Sonia probably knows. She's probably seen an olive tree in Croatia at one time. I've never seen an olive tree. So I, I don't know what exactly Paul is saying here, with the olive tree thing, but I know, right? I mean, I don't know, but I know. Even though I don't know the specifics of the tree, I get what he's saying here. The Jews are the native olive branches, and we, Gentiles, are the wild olive shoots. We are the ones that have been grafted into the tree, and I see the tree as this kind of, this, this, this trajectory of faith going back to the Old Testament, the Abrahamic promise and all these things that happened in the nation of Israel, and we are grafted onto that as wild olive branches. Let me just change the metaphor for you, okay? We're wild olive branches. We are like feral hogs, okay? Not domesticated hogs. We are like wild turkeys, not domesticated turkeys. Here's an image I understand. We are like feral cats, okay, that have been brought into the kingdom of God with the domesticated cats, and God has made us, made us at home with him. I, I know a thing or two about feral cats, so I understand that image more than I do the tree thing here. 
And the great applicational truth of this passage, if you say, Pastor Tony, put this, put this whole thing in one word for me. Here it is, humility. What does God want to teach us from Romans 11, 11 through 24? I mean, I, I got some points for you today. I'll walk you through the passage. Here it is in one word, humility. Humility. God wants to humble us. And if I can say it in an imperative and give you a command, it's this, be humble. Harvesticator, you wild olive shoots, you. Be humble. In fact, in fact, Paul says as much in verse 20. Look at verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. Be humble. Why, Pastor Tony? Why, why do we need to be humble? Here's why. I'll give you three reasons this morning. Here's the first reason. And it relates to ethnic Israel. He's telling us wild olive shoots to be humble as it relates to the Israelites. And here's why. Because God has a future plan for ethnic Israel. God has a future plan for ethnic Israel. Paul says in verse 11, so I ask, did they, the Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall? Who's the they in verse 11? Remember, you always want to identify the pronouns when you read scripture. The they are the Israelites. The they are the Jews, which Paul has been talking about really since Romans 9. But he referenced them in verses 7 through 10. Paul said that in those verses that the majority of the Israelites were hardened because of their unbelief. God has given them a spirit of stupefaction, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear and understand the truth. Not all of them, not all the Jews, let's be clear about that. And Paul says, I'm a Jew. You know, God hasn't forsaken all of his people. I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite. I mean, you even look in the New Testament. Peter's an Israelite. John the Apostle's an Israelite. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, they're Israelites. By no means has God rejected all of his people, says Paul. And now in a similar vein, Paul asks in verse 11, So I ask, did the Israelites stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Absolutely not. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the wild olive shoot. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There's this pattern in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, you can see this in action. Because what does Paul do when he goes from city to city as he's witnessing and sharing the gospel? What does he do first? He goes into the synagogues. He tells them about their Messiah, Jesus. He tells them all the good news about what happened with Jesus. And then he gets rejected typically at those synagogues. And then he shakes the dust off of his feet and he goes to the Gentiles and then preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he goes to the next city in the Roman Empire. And he does the same thing. Goes into the synagogue. The synagogue rejects him. He goes to the Gentiles, preaches the gospel there. Leaves that city, sometimes, you know, threatened by, for his life. Rinse and repeat. Paul does this throughout the book of Acts from place to place to place. And all of that even predates Paul in the book of Acts. If you remember in the book of Acts, the disciples at first were perfectly comfortable just preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Just, just preaching the gospel to ethnic Israelites in Jerusalem and Judea. Do you know what got them out of that habit? Do you know what got them outside of the walls of Jerusalem? They were persecuted by the Jewish people. That's what propelled Peter and John and, and Philip and Stephen and others to preach the gospel beyond the city. It was persecution that did this. The Jews threw Peter into jail. The Jews killed Stephen. They put him to death. 
And because of that, the believers started preaching the gospel outside of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And by the way, this, this is what Jesus told them to do. They were just kind of lackadaisical about it. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I want you to take it everywhere. What did Jesus tell them in Matthew 28? What's the great commission? Go into all the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles too, and preach the gospel and baptize Gentiles too. They didn't do that until the persecution started. The rejection of the Jews led to this great blessing for the Gentiles. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's why Paul says, through their trespass, through their rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What in the world does that mean in verse 12? What's Paul talking about there, full inclusion? Well, I think that this is a reference to God's future plan for Israel. Paul elaborates on this more at the end of chapter 11. We'll deal with this in a couple weeks. God has a plan to bring a large multitude of ethnic Israelites in the period that I see as the tribulation into the kingdom of God. A massive amount of ethnic Jews are coming into the kingdom. It'll be an incredible feat when they will bring abundant goodness and riches to the kingdom of God. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more, how much greater will that be in this full inclusion when this massive number of Jews gets saved and embraces Jesus Christ as their Messiah? We'll talk more about that full inclusion at the end of Romans 11. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. God has a future plan for ethnic Israel. God also has a provoking purpose for Gentiles. God has a provoking purpose for Gentiles. Paul says in verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. We got any Gentiles in this room? Listen up now. A few of y'all anyway. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now verse 12, just clarifying point here. Verse 12 is about the future. But I see verses 13 and 15 through 15. These aren't about the future. These are about the here and now. This is about Paul's present existence. Paul's present situation, every time Paul left those synagogues in the book of Acts and goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, what he's trying to do, at least in part, is to make the Jews in the synagogues jealous. Don't you want what they have? They're embracing our scriptures, Jewish people, my brothers. They're embracing our Messiah, Jesus. He came to us first. Do you see what those Gentiles are embracing? Don't you want that? Don't you want what they have? That's part of the reason that Paul is preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to make his fellow Jews jealous. And by the way, I was just reminded of this yesterday as I was studying. You know, Paul, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He even says it here in Romans 11. But, but he wasn't just an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's clear even from his calling. When Paul got confronted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said this about him. You can read this on the screen. This is Acts 9, 15. 
Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do we have that on the screen, Acts 9, 15? Look at that. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was called to be a minister, to be an apostle to both Jews and Gentiles. And and that makes sense even as Paul writes the book of Romans, because how does he start the book of Romans? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew verse first, and also to the Gentiles. Romans 1.16. He writes this book in Romans, and, and hopefully you can see this by now. He's constantly like referring to Jews and then Gentiles, Jews and then Gentiles. Why is he doing that? Because it's a, it's a multi-ethnic church that he's dealing with, and he's got to deal with both of those groups. He even says, in light of the Gentiles, verse 13, now I'm speaking to the Gentiles because he knows about this multicultural nature of the church, and he needs to minister to both ethnic groups. And what he says to the Gentiles, here's really what he says in verse 11, and I'll just be straight with you. It's, it's, it's kind of insulting to Gentiles. Because it basically says one of the reasons that I'm coming to you Gentiles, one of the reasons I magnify my ministry to you as an apostle of the Gentiles is because I'm trying to make the Jews jealous because of your saving faith. You're like, so you're kind of using us, Paul, as like guinea pigs for the Jews? Yeah, I kind of am. Thanks, Paul. Don't forget what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 2. Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the Israelites that keep rejecting Jesus. He's that heartbroken about it. So he's not just preaching the gospel to Gentiles so Gentiles get saved. He's preaching the gospel to Gentiles so the Gentiles might inspire jealousy among the Jews and they might come to Christ too. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, How much greater will be, that's the idea here, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, this great redemption of the Jewish people? Now, how is this practical for us? You might say, Pastor Tony, I I don't have any Jews on my block that I can provoke to jealousy for the gospel. Okay, maybe you do. Probably you don't. So how do I apply this into my life? Well, here, here's a question for you. I read this this last week in a commentary. Great question. This question was so good. I actually put it in your sermon notes as an applicational question that you can process later. But I want to ask you this now. So this is on the screen, this question. Would an unbeliever, everybody listening, everybody online listening, watching right now? Would an unbeliever, Jew or Gentile, looking at your life, be provoked to jealousy because of the benefits of the gospel you enjoy? Jew or Gentile, looking in on your life, say, I I don't know what that person has, but I want that. Are you provoking them to jealousy because of the, the goodness of the gospel, the riches of the gospel that you enjoy every day? Can I just give you a direct command, an imperative harvest? Let me give you a goal for 2021. Lord, please may it be better than 2020. Here's a goal for 2021, okay? Be provoking. Be provocative. 
among your neighbors, among your friends, among your family members. So they say, I don't know what that guy has, but I want that. How does that person have this peace in the midst of all this craziness in 2020? How does this person have hope when everybody else seems hopeless? How does this person have humility when humility is so hard to come by in this world? Be provoking, Harvest Decatur, because of your Christian faith and the goodness of the gospel that you enjoy. Let me ask that question again. Would an unbeliever, Jew or Gentile, looking at your life be provoked to jealousy because of the benefits of the gospel that you enjoy? I want people to look at my life and say, you know, that guy doesn't look like he's got a lot going for him. But whatever he's got, I want. Because he's able to weather the storms of life in ways that I can't. He has a trust and a faith and a confidence in God that I don't. I want, can I just, here's my goal as your pastor at Harvest Decatur, okay? Everybody listening? I want people to look in on Harvest Decatur and say, that church, I thought they were all crazy, but they got something I want. They got something good. I want us to be a provocative kind of church in that way, provoking others to look in and see what we have in Christ Jesus and jealously seeking after that. Jealousy can be a good thing. Did you know that? Kids, listen up now. There's bad jealousy and there's good jealousy. Bad jealousy is I want that person's house. I want that person's spouse. I want that person's car. This is good jealousy. Like, I want that person's faith in Jesus Christ that helps me through all the difficulties of life. That's good jealousy. That's what Paul's talking about here. So Paul wants us to be provocative. Here's another thing he wants. He wants us to be humble. So write this down as number three. And I'll I'll just frame this for you as a warning because it really is a warning. It's not just, you know, let's be humble now. It's like, no, you do not be arrogant, says Paul. So thirdly, God has a somber warning for Gentiles. God has a provoking purpose for us. He's got a somber warning for us. So here we go. Let's talk about trees. This great metaphor, this great picture of the olive tree. so good. I want you all to get this. What is Paul talking about with the olive tree? Okay, let's get into it. Paul says this in verse 16. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And all of God's people said, what? What are we talking about here, Paul? Well, Paul, bless his heart, is mixing metaphors, which I know you're not allowed to do in your English class. But Paul can do that because he's an apostle and he gets away with it. And so what he's saying here with this lump, he's talking about a lump and the dough linking our Christianity to the Jewish background of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. The first fruits are holy. The lump of dough is holy, that which we come from. The root of the tree is holy. The branches are holy. The whole kit and caboodle of our Jewish scripture and God's promises to us and the Abrahamic covenant. It's holy, it's good, it's right. Don't knock it, Gentiles. That's what he's saying here, ultimately. Don't knock your roots. Don't look down upon your Jewish roots, says Paul. And then here he says in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off of this holy tree with a holy root, and you, Gentiles, 
although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. So we have this tree, right? Everybody's seeing it now? Use your imagination. Bring your imagination to church with you this morning. You got this tree. You got this olive tree, and it's a beautiful tree. And it's got this root, this old historic trunk that is healthy and good, and it's putting off these branches. And, and the root, what is the root? The root is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The root is you know, the Abrahamic promise of the Old Testament. It's the prophets of the Old Testament. All of that is in the root. Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, they're all in the root of this olive tree. And, and inside of that root as well is this messianic hope and this messianic expectation that there will come a, a, a king, a warrior, a leader, a savior, a messiah. All of that is in the roots. And those roots have given off these branches throughout human history that are beautiful and good. But unfortunately, some of those natural branches of the olive tree have been hewn off. They were dead, and so they were removed. And the tree pruner, who I assume to be God in this analogy, he does a curious thing. Instead of replacing these branches with like olive branches, Jews, he took these wild olive shoots, these Gentiles, and grafted them in. And here's how I understand grafting. You know, you prune a tree and then you, you take a branch from another tree and you kind of affix it to that tree and then it grows fruit. And I've heard that you can even do this with pears on an apple tree. You take a pear branch, put it on an apple tree, it'll grow pears. I don't have any experience with this, but that's what I've heard. And so Paul describes these wild olive branches that are affixed to this natural olive tree. What's he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is the fact that the tree pruner, he took these Gentile branches. He took Africans. He took Asians. He took Europeans. He took Italians and Slavs and Irishmen and Englishmen and Scotsmen. He took Germans and he took Native Americans and he took Eskimos. He took these Gentiles, these wild olive shoots, and he affixed them to the tree, the natural olive tree, and they grew. He took us and he put us in his program for salvation that included Israel. Listen, and, and what does it say? It's nourishing. It's, it's a nourishing root. Listen, you got any Gentiles in the room right now? Any Gentiles? Anybody in the, the group of nations that I just mentioned there? Every, y'all ever read the Old Testament? Anybody here ever read the Old Testament? Every time you read the Old Testament and you think to yourself, ooh, ah, that is so good. I love that. You are being nourished by the roots, by your roots. Every time you read the book of Genesis, and you say, ooh, that's so good, I love that. Every time you read the book of Psalms, and say, oh, that's good. Every time you read the book of Proverbs, who doesn't love the book of Proverbs? And say, that's good, you are being nourished by your roots. Every time you look up in the Old Testament and you see these messianic prophecies about Jesus Christ, your Savior, every time you read Isaiah 9, 6 on a Christmas card, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Put that on your Christmas card and send it out, people. Every time you read that, you should think to yourself, Hallelujah, thank you for my roots. Thank you, Lord. This, this is Jesus, my Savior, prophesied in the Old Testament. You are nourished by the root. You are a wild olive branch getting, getting fed by your roots. Do you deserve, let me ask a question here. Do you deserve to be grafted onto that olive tree? Heck no. That's why we call it grace, right? God in his grace has been gracious to us Gentiles. Let me switch the analogy for you here. So you got the tree, olive tree thing. Just set that aside for a second. Let me use one of Jesus's parable. Y'all ever read Jesus's parables? Matthew 22. Do y'all remember the parable of the wedding feast? Do y'all remember that? The, king, the king's son is about to get married. And so he, what does he do? He sends out these messengers and these invitations to all the people in the land. And nobody comes. Nobody wants to come to the wedding feast, to the, the, the wedding of the, of the king's son. And so, you know, the king sends out his messengers again, and he says, come, come, the fed and calves have been slaughtered. It's going to be a great celebration. The people refuse to come. You know what the people do? They actually put the messengers to death. So uh, what's the king do? Well, the king says, well, we got to get some people here for this feast, for this wedding. So he sends out his messengers again, and he says, go into the byways and the highways and just bring anybody. Bring the riffraff. Bring the nobodies. Bring, bring, bring the people that, you know, nobody thinks much of. Do you know, let me just ask you a question here, Gentiles. Do you know who we are in Jesus' parable there? We are the riffraff. We are the nobodies and the anybodies that get brought in. We are the feral cats that God brings into his kingdom and says, this is my home. This is for you. And he feeds us and he loves us and he takes care of us and he puts us in his kingdom. To some of you, you might say, well, that, Pastor Tony, you know, that hurts my feelings, what you're saying right now as a Gentile. That's really humbling. Good. That's exactly what Paul wants it to be. That's exactly what he's saying here. Here, here, let me say it this way. Paul wants to provoke jealousy among the Jews. He wants to provoke humility among the Gentiles. That's what he's trying to do in this passage. Provoking humility among the Gentiles, provoking jealousy among the Jews. And speaking of humility, Paul says this. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Let's go back to that olive tree imagery. Who, who, what branches? We're talking about the natural branches, right? The Jews. And you know, I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Martin Luther said some terrible things about the Jews in his day, about the branches, the natural branches. And I, I love me some Martin Luther. I do. I love him. But I don't love him for that. He should not have said those things. And just a word of warning here, Harvest Decatur, don't be arrogant towards the root, towards the branches. To that, why? If you're arrogant, says Paul, look at verse 18. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You're just, you're just a wild olive shoot that's been grafted on. You know, don't bite the hand that fed you. 
Go ahead and write this down as 3A. Let me just give you three applicational points to close this out. Here's the first one, 3A. I'll give you A, B, and C. Here's A. Don't ignore your roots. Don't ignore your roots, Harvest Decatur. There's this song that I've heard a lot lately. It's really popular. It's called uh, No Roots by Alice Merton, I think her name is. I heard it in the store the other day when I was shopping, and I, it's so catchy. I've got no roots, but my home is never. It's just I'm singing it here in Walmart, and everybody's like, who is this guy, and why is he singing this song? It's really catchy. I was singing it this morning, and Alistair's like, what are you singing? That is the weirdest song. I've got no roots. It's cool. But you know what? And that might be true for Alice Merton, whoever wrote that song. She's rootless. She's got no roots. That might be true for her. It's not true for us as Christians. We got roots. We've got this connection to the to the Israelite people, to the Old Testament. How could you be anti-Semitic when you realize that your roots as a Christian are Jewish? Your Messiah is Jewish. I heard a pastor say this last week, that whenever he encounters a Jewish person, he always starts out by saying this, I love Jewish people, he tells him. I love Jewish people. And of course, they're like, well, why, as a Protestant, do you love Jewish people? And he says this, he says, 64 of the 66 books in my Protestant Bible were written by Jews. I love Jewish people. He says, my Messiah is Jewish. His mama was Jewish. She's, she's offspring of King David. So was his adoptive father, Joseph. He's the root of David. I love Jewish people, he says. Don't ignore your roots, Harvest Decatur. Don't ignore your roots, you wild olive branches, you. And then under 2B, write this down, 3B, sorry. Don't ignore your roots and don't get cocky. Paul says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. And then he says this, look at verse 19. Then you will say, Gentiles, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You know, you can kind of hear the pride in this. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Oh, yeah, look at us. We're grafted in. We're really special. Paul says, verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but instead fear. John Stott said this. You can read this on the screen. He said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the great enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Is that true, Harvest Decatur? Anybody else experience that? Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. This is an ongoing battle in the Christian life and Paul wants you to stay humble in your walk with Christ. And you know, it, let me just explain this a little bit in terms of what Paul is saying. Here's why we don't get cocky, okay? Here, here's, when I say don't get cocky, I'm not talking about like this, this feigned humility, you know, like this, this false piety, like, you know, you really are special and you're really important to God and God loves you so much, but just to keep up appearances, you should pretend to be humble as best you can. That is not what Paul is saying here. Here's how I know that. What does Paul say? He says, you stand what? By faith. You are nothing special. You are a wild olive branch. Humility is the right response. You should be humble because you don't deserve to be there. 
Arrogance here, you know what arrogance is? It's delusion. Arrogance is self-deception. We stand by faith in the work that Jesus has done. Nothing that we've done, of course we should be humble. And the reason we don't stay humble is because we lose sight of that. We start thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think instead of saying, you know what? I don't really belong to be here. I don't really deserve to be here. But Jesus, in his love and mercy for me, made a way for me to be here. You know what? I should be humble. And it just flows naturally from that. This, this is just reality. So, says Paul, do not become proud, but fear. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs. Fearing God is an aspect of our faith. It's an aspect of our worship. Here's the warning. Look at verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, Jews, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. Ooh. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in your kindness. In other words, perseverance of the saints. Continuing in faith. Continuing as a branch connected to the root. Go ahead and write this down as 3C in your notes. Don't ignore your roots. Don't get cocky. And don't forget God's kindness. Don't forget God's kindness. All right, let me finish up this passage, and then I want to talk about eternal security, because I know you guys have questions about that. In light of this analogy, Paul says in verse 22, Note the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen but kindness to you, Gentiles. Keep in mind, Paul's speaking to Gentiles here. He said in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, the Israelites, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in. In other words, some of those pruned branches that came down, I mean, those are more natural olive branches. They grew up with the Old Testament, read to them. I mean, they have that history. They have that heritage. It's going to be much easier for God to just bring them back onto the olive tree than us wild olive branches. And if God wants to do that, he can do that. And there's a great example of that in the scriptures as well. In Acts chapter 6, there's this wonderful statement about priests that get saved. Luke says this. You can read this on the screen. This is Acts 6, verse 7. Luke says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multitude greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I missed that so many times when I read through the book of Acts. And, and, you know, when I preached through that, I, I remember thinking to myself, the priest, I wonder if these were the same priests that threw Peter into prison. I wonder if these were the same priests that were complicit in crucifying Jesus. I mean, Jesus had just been crucified a little bit before this. Peter and John had been to the prison multiple times by Acts chapter 6. Pentecost has already happened. And now these people, these priests, maybe, who were actually persecuting believers, putting Christ to death, are getting saved. So... The hewn-off branches, I think, are being put back on the tree now as saved believers. I'm not so sure Paul isn't in this category. 
in verse 24 of the branches that have been knocked up. Paul was killing Christians before he got saved. And then now he's in the kingdom of God. Now he's a branch that's been restored. I, I think this might be autobiographical. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, like me, natural branches, Jews, be grafted back into their own olive tree? A couple applications for you here, Harvest Decatur. Listen up. So one of the things that Paul is advocating for is he, he wants Jews to get saved after rejecting Christ. Hewn off, bring them back onto the branch. Let me just encourage you, don't ever, 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 ever give up on people. Praying for them, loving them, sharing the gospel with them. Jews and Gentiles both. Don't ever give up on them. Paul is heartbroken in Romans chapter 9 because his own people, the Israelites, are rejecting Jesus. Is he going to quit on them? Is he going to stop? No, he's not. He's going to keep preaching the gospel and keep preaching the gospel. And until a person is dead, whether Jew or Gentile, there is opportunity for them to get saved. Don't ever give up on people. And then here's another application. There's a warning here for us. Salvation, one of the things that Paul is illustrating here is that salvation is a lifelong commitment to Christ. To get on that tree and to stay on that tree forever. That is salvation. Not I'm on, I'm off. I'm on, I'm off. On and off, 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 on. I heard just through another pastor this last week, I, I heard a person actually say, I've made Jesus the Savior of my life, but I haven't yet made him the Lord of my life. What? Like, that's some kind of two different things. You know, I got, I got saved. I made Jesus my Savior, but he's not my Lord yet. I'm kind of waiting on that. Waiting for what? And how is that an aspect of salvation? Like, you know, we can just be these wild olive shoots just kind of floating around in, in the space without being connected to the root, without being anchored in any way. Let me just tell you, Harvest Decatur, the New Testament knows nothing of the salvation of, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. You know, I do my own thing, but, you know, he saved me. Got my fire insurance in my back pocket. We're good. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of salvation. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of Savior. To, to make Jesus your Savior is to make him your Lord, to confess him as Lord. Those things are the same thing. What we're talking about here is called perseverance of the saints. Some might call it eternal security. And I think that's a good term as long as we understand it correctly. So hear me on this. Let me just talk about this for a second. Genuine saved believers don't pray a prayer of salvation, put some fire insurance in their back pocket, and then live their lives however they want, separated from Jesus. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of salvation. That that is an artificial creation. I don't know if it was created in America, but it got perfected in America, that idea. The New Testament knows nothing of that. When you get saved, you confess Jesus as your Lord. You, you get affixed to the tree, and you draw your sustenance, your nourishment from that tree. And, 
And, and that's another reason we're not prideful, because we're, we're connected to him constantly. It's not, well, you know, I, I deserve to be on this tree because my mom is on this tree. My daddy's on this tree. I was born in America. Of course I'm on the tree. Paul says, watch yourself. Watch out, Gentile believers. It's God's kindness that leads to your salvation. It's God's mercy. It's God's grace that puts you on that tree. So here's the question. I know you're thinking it. You're wondering it. So, Pastor Tony, can someone lose their salvation, get lopped off the tree? Is that what's happening here? Someone lose their salvation? Here's my official word on that, my position. No, I don't think so. And, and some Christians may disagree with me. I, I don't think so. I think that Paul is illustrating here and arguing for something different, that somebody who's affixed to the tree will stay affixed to the tree if they're a genuine believer. Let me just give you another verse that reiterates this, 1 John two nineteen. Let me give you, explain this a little bit further with some fisherman theology. Can I help you with this? Some good old fisherman theology from the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 19. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. How do you know a person is truly saved, Pastor Tony? How do you know? How do you know? They get saved and they stay saved. They persevere in their faith. It's called the perseverance of the saints. And, and some of you might ask as a follow-up to that, okay, well, what about people who walk away from their faith, Pastor Tony? Or what about people who said at one time they believed and now they don't believe? I know people like that, Pastor Tony. I know people like that too. And here's what I would say about that. They went out from us because they were not of us. They walked away because they were never saved in the first place. That's the only way I know how to make sense of even what the Bible speaks about us being deposited with the Holy Spirit as this internal, eternal guarantee that we belong to Christ. Let me give you a great quote on this. This is from Pastor J.D. Greer. You can read this on the screen. Greer has a book on this entitled Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. If you want to read more on this topic, you can read that book. It's good. But Greer says one of the essential marks of truly saving faith is that it endures to the end. If your faith endures to the end, that is evidence you had the salvation you could never lose. If it doesn't, that means you never had it to begin with. The real doctrine of eternal security reads like this, one saved, always saved, but also one saved, forever following. Having a faith that endures to the end is evidence that you possess the salvation that you could never lose. Let me read that again. Having a faith that endures to the end is evidence that you possess the salvation you could never lose. Not enduring to the end is evidence you never had it to begin with. Saving faith is staying faith. Okay, final thoughts, Harvest Decatur. Don't get, don't get cocky. Don't be arrogant. Paul wants us to be humble about the gift of grace that God has given us as Gentiles. 
Be humble before God. Be grateful before God. Thankful for the salvation that he gave us that we do not deserve. And by the way, when I say humility, I don't mean the kind of diffidence where you've got to constantly be insecure. You know, humility means like you can't be secure about your salvation. That is not true at all. You can be both humble and totally secure. We are wild olive shoots, yeah, but we are saved wild olive shoots. We can have confidence about that. And I think the perfect example of that is Jesus himself, who was humble, more humble than we'll ever be. But at the same time, he was confident about who he was and who God had called him to be. We can be like that too. Be humble, be confident, be grateful. We are wild olive branches, but saved wild olive branches thanks to God's mercy and God's grace in our life. Amen, church? I'll close with this. I know I get really verbose after vacation. I just got so much stuff I want to say, all right? So just one more thing. Worship team, y'all can go ahead and come up. And I just want to say one more thing before we're done. You might say, Pastor Tony, okay, I get it. Don't be cocky. Working on it. I'm working on it, Pastor Tony. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. I get it. Can you give us, Pastor Tony, the, a really great example of that? You know, like, like a really God-honoring, God-glorifying example of humility, somebody that we could emulate. Yes, I can. Have you ever heard of Christmas? Anybody ever heard of Christmas? What do we celebrate at Christmas? Let me say it differently. What, what should we celebrate at Christmas? Here's the example that was set for us. The creator of the universe, God, Yahweh, created us, created everything that is around us. That God came into our world and took on human flesh and lived as one of his created beings. And he was born into our world. And he wasn't born into a palace. He, he was born into a stable. He was born to teenagers, peasants, in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. And the witnesses of this great birth of the God of the universe, there were more animal witnesses than there were human witnesses. And they placed him in a feeding trough. That is the greatest demonstration of humility the world has ever shown. You know what Paul says about that? I think Hang read this verse earlier. Paul says in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like Jesus in this way. I can't ever be like Jesus in that way, Pastor Tony. I know. Struggle to approximate it for your entire life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, humbled himself in that way so that we might be saved. This is the Jesus that we know and we love and we believe in. And Paul says, emulate him. Church, be like Jesus in this way. Be like your Savior. God, help us to do that in this Christmas season.